Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 4. Psalm 4. This is the fourth psalm. It's in the Pew Bibles. Before you, page number 393 of the Old Testament. Psalm 4 is our our text this morning. I want to read it and then pray. And then we're just going to dig into it and and open it up this morning. It's It's a great psalm. I've been meditating on it all week. And I look forward to sharing it with you this morning. Psalm 4 starts like this for the choir director on string instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness, you have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Selah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. Many are saying, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. You've put gladness and joy in my heart. More than when their grain and new wine abound in peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. Let's pray. O Lord, I I do believe in the Holy Spirit. Lord, we we need you to come. We need you to teach and illuminate our hearts and our minds. God, to give us tender passions towards you and towards your word. Apart from the Holy Spirit coming, this is a mere lecture this morning. With the Holy Spirit coming, O Lord, this is the words of life imparted into souls, some of which are edified and encouraged and some of which may rise from the dead. God, so I pray that you would open eyes for us today. I pray that you would open our ears that we might hear. They might see wonderful things from your word. That we might cherish them, love them, nourish them. I pray, O oh Lord, that we might follow the example and model of David. who found great peace in times of, of great trouble. So help these words, O oh Lord, to open up this word to us that we might, might just continue to grasp what you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> I remember hearing the story, surely fictitious, but it's a great story, of a, of a man who was candidating to be a pastor of a church. And uh, he came up and he preached his candidating sermon. And it was a wonderful sermon. And everybody loved it. And afterwards they voted him into the church. And uh, then when he came, uh, the next Sunday, which was his first Sunday as the official pastor of the church, to many people's surprise, he preached the same sermon. And so they, congregation a little set on edge, that was okay. And, and then they were greatly shocked and even more surprised when the third Sunday he preached the same sermon again. And so the leaders of the church afterwards met him in his office and, and really asked him and, and inquired. says, why did you preach the same sermon to us three times? Are you aware of what you did? He said, oh yes, I'm very much aware. He said, when you start living out that first sermon... Then I'll preach the second sermon to you. That's what he said. 
Well, this morning I feel a bit like that preacher. I feel like this morning I'm going to preach the, the same sermon that I did last week. The sermon goes like this. Life is difficult and things are hard and I'm in trouble now, but I'm going to find my comfort in the Lord. That was the message of Psalm 3 last week. So we go on. This is going to be this is the message this week of Psalm 4. Now, both these psalms are very much alike. They're both written by David. They're both written in times of of great trouble and trial and hardship and distress. They both detail antagonism from from others against David. And they both speak of a, a peace and a safety and a security that David found in the Lord. In fact, both of these psalms mention sleep. Psalm chapter three, verse five. Psalm chapter four, verse eight, and sleep is is that which really signifies just rest and trust and security in God. This has led many to believe that Psalm three and Psalm four were written on the same occasion. Um, In fact, some have even said that Psalm three is a morning psalm because it says in three five, I awoke for the Lord sustains me. Psalm Four, they say, is an evening psalm because that's where they lie down in sleep. So it's a morning and evening. And so people see these the same message as a, a nice tandem, one in the morning and one in the evening. Uh, it may well be the case. Um, it says at the beginning of Psalm three in the superscription there that David wrote this when he fled from Absalom, his son. And so it may be the same occasion, but we have no way of knowing and we don't know. And, and unlike Psalm Four, Psalm three doesn't have a superscription telling us about the circumstances surrounding the events of why he wrote. It simply tells about the psalm. In fact, look there at the superscription. It says this for the choir director on string instruments, a psalm of David. <clears throat> These words tell us this psalm is appropriate for public worship. It's written to the choir director, and that would be even be able to be sung by the congregation or a song to be sung by the choir. The superscription also gives us the mood. It says on stringed instruments. That is, it's not to be played with trumpets and tambourines, which is more of a festival, festive occasion. But rather, it's this is more the tone of this song is more like a lament. In fact, Psalm four and Psalm three are both called laments, problems and trials and one crying out to the Lord. And the instrumentation should be equivalent to a lament, maybe maybe more in the minor key a little bit as the psalm. The superscription also tells us a third thing that David wrote it, the psalm of David. But this superscription gives us no details about the circumstances around which this was written. Doesn't tell us it was written at the same time or anything like that. In fact, if you work a little bit and read the history of David, you can find several instances in which Psalm 4 would fit perfectly into the historical circumstances of David's life. Like you might place it sometimes during his sometime during his years of fleeing from Saul. Saul was the the anointed king. David was the anointed one waiting to be king. Saul was obviously jealous of David. And uh, it could have been written on those times where he's fleeing for his life in the wilderness, in the cave. He was in distress and on the run. Psalm four fits perfectly into this situation. Verse two. Oh, sons of men. How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception, right? Deceiving. David wasn't out to kill Saul. Saul was jealous of David and so sought to kill him. And this is just deception all around. And, and verse two might fit that circumstance. Or, or you might place it in the time when the Amalekites came and destroyed the city of Ziklag. Destroying all the men and those who survived, the women and children, were so embittered against David, they threatened to stone him and to kill him. 
And again, that would fit into Psalm four, verse two again. Oh, sons of man, how long will my honor become a reproach? The fact that David was only slow in overtaking the city and not fast enough, they, they began to speak poorly of David. So that situation might fit Psalm four or, or the events of, of Sheba. When, when Sheba revolted against uh, David and tried to become king in David's place, just like Absalom had done. In fact, these two events about Sheba trying to become king and many people following after him and Absalom, we saw last week, becoming king, many people following after them. They were so similar that one man said to David, Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do more harm than Absalom. And Absalom, you remember, just reigned for a few days, months, weeks before he was killed by hanging the tree. And I, I think that verse 6 Speaks the same thing. Many will say, who will show us any good? A little bit like, who's going who's gonna to show us good? Well, David's not going to show us good. Maybe Absalom will. Maybe Sheba will. So the bottom line is this. We don't know the circumstances surrounding Psalm 4. And that's really okay, by the way. In, in fact, because we might say, okay, Psalm 3, you can only apply it when you're out in the wilderness being chased by someone who's become king in your place. And that's hard to apply. Most of us aren't kings. Most of us don't have a, a son who's taken over a reign. It's hard, but Psalm 4, without a historical circumstance, then opens up to a wider range of application. Wherever the psalm fits is place for application. But we do know the message of Psalm 3 and Psalm 4 are the same. The troubles around you, even troubles of the worst kind, you can find your safety and security and peace and trust and rest in God. In fact, all of Psalm 4 is, is, is aiming towards verse 8 in peace i will both lie down and sleep for you alone O lord make me to dwell in safety i have no apologies this morning for preaching the same sermon i preached last week because quite frankly we all need to hear this we all need to hear this because you may be going through today some major trial in your life Maybe something that's hard, that's beyond your control, that you just don't know what you're going to do. And in that case, Psalm 4, the message of finding trust and rest in God will, will be a balm to your soul, Lord willing. Maybe today finds you without any major trial. Maybe life is going on just well. Well, this psalm is, in fact, even maybe more important for you to learn this morning because a major trial is coming in your life. I was with some friends on the 4th of July and we we're sitting in their home and uh, 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 some neighbors had this scooter that was running up and down the street. Kind of, I don't even know what you call these little motorcycles. These little, Tim, you'd probably know what they were, like these little little groupy motorcycle kind of, what? Po- pocket rockets? Okay, I don't know what they are, but, but this thing sounded like it had a two-stage, it sounded like a chainsaw, this one did. It's like really loud going up and down the, and so the discussion went to motorcycles and and my friend quoted his father who said like this, there, there are two people, two types of people who own motorcycles. Those who've had an accident and those who will have an accident. That's what he says. He calls them donor vehicles oftentimes. And uh, I know that's what my dad would say. I never could get a, get a motorcycle. Never wanted a motorcycle because they helped put me through college as he was an orthopedic surgeon. But the same is true about, about, um, about trials. There are two types of people in this world. Those who've had major trials and those who will have major trials. And it is best to learn how you're going to solve those problems when that major trial comes before you enter that trial. Because quite frankly, when you're in the hospital, sick, dying, perhaps, that's not the time to begin to learn to trust in the Lord. 
As Tim Keller wrote, once you're in a crisis, it's too late. There's no time to sit down to give a substantive study and attention to parts of the Bible. He says, as a working pastor for nearly four decades, I have often sat beside people who are going through terrible troubles and silently wish that they had taken time to learn more about their faith before the tidal wave of trouble had engulfed them. J. Carson echoes the same thing. He says this, it's important to try to establish Christian structures of thought that are already given before the pain and before the bereavement strike. And he then said, part of what I try to teach congregations is with the aim that more Christians will be better prepared for suffering when it comes. And so if today is in a trial, Psalm 4 will be helpful for you. But if today doesn't find you in a trial, you will. Psalm 4 is a good psalm to learn now before the trial comes. So I trust that all of us would do well to pay attention to Psalm 4. Well, let's dig in. We're just going to verse by verse. I'm just going to open it up, try to catch the flow of the psalm. The psalm is, I'm in trouble. I'm seeking the Lord. He'll be my rest. I'm in trouble. I'm seeking the Lord. He'll be my rest and help. Okay, first point, the cries of anguish. We see this in verses 1 and 2. David writes, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? We see two cries here in these verses. Verse 1 is a cry addressed to God. Verse 2 is a cry addressed to men particularly to those who are troubling David. And I trust even as I read this, you can feel the passion of David. Verse 1 is a plea, answer me, be gracious to me, hear my prayer, God. Verse 2 is an expression of exasperation, right? How long, how long will this take place? These verses show the depth of David's pain and his struggle and his agony. Light trouble calls for light cries and heavy trouble calls for heavy cries. And these cries were heavy. These were the cries of a a desperate man. In fact, they even border on being demanding of God. Look at verse one again. Answer me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. You have relieved me in times of my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. It's just as if he went to heaven. He says, my trouble is big. God, I need your answer. I need your help. So come right now and answer me, please. It's interesting here. David prayed to God because he had nowhere else to turn. If it's like Absalom, he was running out of town. If if he's running from Saul, he's hiding in a cave someplace. If it's Sheba's overcoming, then he's, he's also on the run. Pleaded, basically, God would come and rescue him. And I just say, have you ever been to this place before? We have no other help but God. No other place to turn. That's a difficult place to be, but that's a good place to be. Because when you come to the end of yourself, when all of your problems of life become too big for you, your sin becomes too big for you, you nowhere else to turn but to God, that's exactly where God wants all men to be. And He looks to the humble and to those who are contrite of spirit. And He looks to those who who aren't looking to their own selves for their own resources, but are looking to the Lord for help. 
That's right where, where David was. And it's interesting here in verse 1. There's no mention of the particulars of a situation, only that he needs God's help and he needs it desperately. That's why he cries to the Lord and calls the Lord and prays. Now, in the midst of his prayer, I, I, I love this middle phrase here, verse 1, how he reflects upon God's goodness to him in the past. He says this, Answer me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. He reflects upon what has taken place in his life. Now, the NIV translates this, give me relief from my distress, making another request. But, but, but the, other, the other verb forms here, they're all commands. They're all pleas. And, and this one's a different verb form. It should be translated differently like the NAS and the ESV. You have relieved me in my distress. He's looking back to the time when God had helped him. And it gives him hope for the future. Maybe God will come and act again. He remembers the time when he he beat Goliath with that stone to the forehead. He remembers the multiple times that Saul tried to pin him to the wall with a spear. By God's grace, he escaped. He remembers all those times running from Saul or, or the time when Ziklag was angry with him or when Absalom or Sheba revolted. And he was remembering this distress and said, God, you have relieved me, but relieve me again. I need your help now. And it'd be good for you to do this in your distress. Just think about, yes, I need, I need your help today, Lord, but review all the times in which God has helped you before in the past. And trust that God will do it again. That is our life, is it not? It's coming to a constant place of desperation where we need God to come and act. At least that's, that's where I am as I preach every week. I am so desperate every week as I come and stand before you. Trying to come with a fresh word from God for all of you. There's a desperation I have every week. And you all, maybe job or work or family situations or children. There might be some situation. Just, just God, you've been good in the past. Will you please be good again in the future to me? I need your help. And notice here, it's good. verse 1, he, he's not claiming his own merit. He's pleading God's grace. That last phrase there, be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Oh God, you've been gracious to me in the past. I just long and trust that you'll be gracious to me again here in the future. Well, that's the cry to God, verse 1. Verse 2 is the cry to men. You can see it right there. O sons of men. That's to whom he's addressing. He's addressing this to men. Now, this phrase, sons of men, is not a common word used in the Old Testament, but it probably refers to leaders, to kings or governors or those in authority. And he says, O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? Sounds a little bit like Psalm chapter 2, verse 1. We looked at two weeks ago. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? In fact, there's some parallels here. This vain thing is the, the same word as right, the, these guys aiming at what's worthless, right? Why are, you, why are you going after that which is substanceless, substance, without substance? Okay, let's put it that way. Why are you doing that? Psalm 2, verse 1, though, is a rhetorical question. The whole scope of that song is that the, God has raised Messiah above. He's going to rule and reign. Why are you raging against God? That's totally futile. But Psalm 4, verse 2, we see David asking questions about those who are slandering him and, and seeking to hurt him. David, the king, deserves honor. Just we're to honor all those in authority over us. First Peter 2:17. honor all people, love the brethren, brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. But David's honor is being turned into shame right here at verse two. How long will my honor become a reproach? 
The parallel thought comes in the second half, right? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? They're pursuing worthless, deceptive things rather than the honor of David. I, th- I think it's all meant to tear David down, to just bring him down from being king. And he's feeling the pain. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. It's not true. In the Bible, you see over and over and over again, it's the names, the slanders, the bringing down that hurts. If you've been slandered before, you know how much that hurts. You're seeking to do right with all your heart, and then people are giving you false motives or false things. They're just trying to tear you down. It hurts. I'd rather get clubbed over the head than that. But this is the cry. David felt this pain and the anguish. And so he asked these two questions to the sons of men. Verse 2. But, but really, these two questions, sons of men, aren't, they're not really questions asked to the sons of men. Really, they're prayer requests to God. Because these men aren't going to change, really. But it's more exasperation. That just, it is addressed to people. But it's kind of like, God, how long is this going to happen? How, how long are these people going to be doing this? In fact, the Psalms are filled with this how long cry. So you look over at Psalm chapter 10, verse 1. We'll be right back here in Psalm 4. 10, 1. Why do you stand afar off, O my Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? God, you're, you're, you're far off. And I'm in trouble and you're not here. Why? Or Psalm 13, verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And, and the similar thought here in chapter 4, verse 2 is, is this. God, how long is it going to be that my, my glory is going to be turned into shame? And God, how long is it going to be that others are going to love what's worthless and aim at deception? And how how long is it going to be that slander and rebellion against me and against you are going to continue? God, when are you going to stop that? It's really a prayer to God. And I just say this, in your pain, in your trouble, God may seem to be far off. It may seem like your trials never will never end. In fact, this is the message of many psalms going through life where where the trial and difficulty is like, when will it end? When will it end? When will it end? Psalm 40, verse one says, I waited patiently for the Lord. We need to wait patiently for the Lord to come. And it's also the message of many psalms. God's got it under control. Let's trust him. In fact, that's the point of verses three and four. God's got it under control. Just trust him. Right. We go from the cries of anguish, verses one and two, to the conduct of the godly. Right. The godly will stay the course. They'll trust the Lord. Verse three and four. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call him. Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. And now again, we see verse three is is addressed to somebody in the context of Psalm four. It's addressed to the sons of men. He's saying, okay, sons of men, know this fact. Know that God has set apart the godly for himself. But it's interesting, as David is addressing these sons of men, he's really addressing us. This is something you need to know. In the day of your trial, you need to know that God has set apart the godly man for himself. In fact, I think this is something that David needed to know as well. In his trial, he was reminding himself of the realities of God, the trials come his way. See, God looks upon the one who loves him, the one who seeks his ways, 
one who's faithful to his covenant. And that one is under the watchful care of God. God like, like separates him, like keeps him apart, like protects him, puts a hedge of protection around him. Jesus said that a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground without God taking notice. How much more notice does he take for the godly? He protects them. He watches over this. And I, and I think we all know this. But David says we really need to know this. That's why verse 3 starts this. But know, be firmly convinced in your mind that your soul is safe in God. If you can be identified as a godly one. The question, obviously, then to all of us is this. Well, has the Lord set you apart? Are you one of these godly ones? Because this promise does not come to the ungodly ones. But he set apart the godly man for himself. You say, well, what does a godly one mean? Well, godly one means simply you're trusting in the Lord. You're walking his ways. You've come to, to faith in Christ. You've, you've come to God the only way you can at the cross. Having his, his sacrifice, forgiving your sins. You've entrusted your soul to Christ. You've, you've pleaded mercy at the cross. That's your only way you live. And then you're trusting him in the day of trial. And that's David's point. Yes, I'm in anguish. The trials of my life are great. But I know that these things haven't escaped the notice of my God. And I know that I'm one of his. And I'm going to trust him through this time of affliction. Because as Jesus said... Those that are mine I have, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. In fact, that's the point of the last part of verse 3. The Lord hears when I call to Him. See, there's a difference between the prayer of the righteous and the prayer of the wicked. The prayer of the righteous are heard by God. The prayer of the wicked are not. The prayer of the righteous God loves. The prayer of the wicked God hates. Psalm 66, verse 18, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Psalm 18, 41 speaks of those who don't know the Lord. They cry for help, but there was none to save. Even to the Lord, they cried for help. But he did not answer them because they're enemies of God. They hated God. But only when their circumstances were, were bad enough, did they pray to God. But here, here's, here's the truth that God will not listen to those who will not listen to him. Did you catch that? God will not listen to those who do not listen to him. But if we listen to the Lord, respond, believe the things he says, right? we respond, then see the fruit of Christ in our lives, do the things he tells us to do. God, God will listen to us. That's Proverbs 28, verse nine. He who turns away his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. You're going to turn your ear away from the law. Then your prayers to God are abomination because you're not interested in him except what he can do maybe for you. But David says something different about himself. He said, the Lord does hear when I call. He puts himself in this godly category. He puts himself in the, the faithful one who's, who's seeking after the Lord. Now, how do you reconcile the end of verse 3 with the beginning of verse 1? The Lord hears when I call to him. And the last part of verse 1, hear my prayer. So uh, he's not hearing his prayer, but he is hearing his prayer. Here's the deal. I, I think that the Lord hears, but he's not fully answered it yet. Because his prayer is not being answered exactly the way that he is hoping. God's answer is coming slow. And, and it may be that when you pray, it may just be that God's answer is coming slow to you. And it may be. He may not be doing what exactly you want him to do. 
But listen, church family, if you're one of his children, if you love and trust Christ and you believe in him, he hears your cries. So trust him with the answer. It may not come exactly how you want. But who are you to dictate the ways of God? How are we puny men who are less than a drop of the bucket dictate God and what he's going to do? But but there's a balance of the psalm. David comes boldly in verse one. And by all means, pour out your heart to the Lord. Answer me when I call O Lord. Hear my prayer. Be gracious to me. Right. Come boldly. Let your request clearly be known to God. Knock often at the door. Jesus says the one who asks and knocks and seeks will find. But in the end, trust his ways. That's what godly ones do. You remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? He said, my father, if it is possible, remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but as you will. And Jesus prayed that prayer with compassion, with great passion, rather. Luke 22 says he was so much in agony, he was praying fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling on the ground. He was agony, agonizing. Hebrews 5, 7, in the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him. From death, and he was heard because of his piety. God heard Jesus in his great agony because of his piety. He was one of these godly ones. God's will brought Jesus to the cross, the very thing he was praying against. But he prayed against it. If there's another cup for me, if you can take this cup away from me, do it, O Lord. Yet not what I will, but what you, O Lord, will. He prayed and he eagerly said, God, help me but submitted himself under his will. And, and it wasn't easy for Christ. He willingly followed the Lord in the dark night of his soul, but he did. That's what David says. The Lord hears when I call to him. It's the conduct of, of the godly. See, the conduct of the godly will follow the ways of the Lord even when they're difficult to understand. That great hymn by William Cooper, many of you know this by heart. We've sung it many times here. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill. He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. God's working. Even we can't understand it. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage, take the clouds that you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessing on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. God's got his ways of answering his prayer David's longing for that. It's not being fully resolved yet. I think that's some of the idea of here. Verse four, tremble and do not sin. Meditate upon your heart and be still. Right. Just just think about these things. How can it be? This word tremble in verse four just just comes from Hebrew word means just being shaken or agitated or stirred up. You might say be shaken might be what. Verse four says, and do not sin. This may be shaking with fear. Or maybe shaking with anger, as the ESV has it as a Septuagint translated it, as Paul picked up 
perhaps in Ephesians 4.26. Those are legitimate translations. Shaking with fear at God and the way he's, he's revealed himself and the way you're in anguish, but you're one of, one of his, but it's not being resolved yet. Or shaking with anger, and I think the shaking with fear makes the most sense clearly from this context here. David was trembling with fear and all the circumstances surrounding him. Not receiving this release, but he wasn't sinning. He was trusting himself to the Lord. In other words, fear of your circumstances? Yes. Doubting the ways of God? Absolutely not. Understanding the ways of the Lord? No. Trusting in the ways of the Lord? Yes. Going to sleep like a baby. Thinking on these things. Thinking of the mysterious ways of God. Trusting in his plan for your life. Even when it doesn't match up with everything that you had hoped for or expected. Certainly David would rather be in the palace ruling and reigning king, receiving honors he deserved. He wanted loyal subjects to submit to his rule. But that wasn't what David was experiencing as king. He was on the run. Enemies in the kingdom. Seeking to take away his honor. But what he did is he meditated upon his, his bed. He took his own counsel. This is the conduct of the godly. The second half of verse 4 says, Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Verse 8, we see him talking about his sleep. He's lying down and sleeping in safety. He, he was doing this. He was meditating upon the truth of God, upon his unanswered prayer. I just want to take us a moment here. Verse four, when you hit that and it says meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. You, you know, our lives are so busy. We're going from this and that. We've got this happening, this happening, this happening, this happening. Every evening seems like we almost have something going on at our house. Just more and more. Just, just doing all this stuff. And, and how often do you just be still before the Lord? Maybe the only time you really think about it is when you're still upon your bed. And I would encourage you to do that tonight. As you lay your head upon your pillow, certainly it's just good. But I just want to take a few moments now. The, the command here in verse 4 says, meditate in your heart upon your bed. Let's just meditate in our hearts upon the Lord and His ways. You, you may be here this morning facing your own cries of anguish, problems and trials in your life. Problems... Your trials seemingly go on and on and on. God may appear distant or silent or unaware. But remember how your conduct ought to be. If you've trusted in Christ, remember God knows the circumstances surrounding your life. He knows all of them. He hears your prayer. He calls you to trust Him. So I know there's a hundred different ways in which you're all meditating upon your own trials and difficulties. Just think about that. It's the call to meditate. It's the call to be still. It's the call of Selah we talked about last week. Selah means pause. Think about it. God is worthy to be trusted. So is Christ. Close the Spirit. Be led by Him. Trust in Him. You know, David may not have liked his circumstances. He may not have understood his circumstances. 
But through it all, he's trusting the Lord. In fact, that's where verse five goes. Look at verse five. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. That's why I think it's appropriate to be sung for the, the choir. I mean, this is a this is a, a testimony of David to God, but he also then turns to us and tells us how to act. He says, offer sacrifices of righteousness. That's opposite of sacrifices of wickedness. It's opposed to doubting the ways of God. Now, unlike David, we live after the cross and after Christ. He became a perfect substitute, a perfect sacrifice. And so the, the, the counsel here in verse 5, of course, in the Old Testament needs to be filtered through the cross that comes to us. He's not, he's not asking us to go to a temple, bring in a lamb. And a knife which we slit his, the lamb's throat, taking the, taking the blood and sprinkling it upon the sides of the altar, and then sacrificing the lamb up to God for our sins. No, we don't need that. We've had the lamb of God sacrificed for our sins, Jesus Christ upon the cross. But we can offer righteous sacrifices metaphorically today, and that's how the writer of Hebrews says it. He says, Hebrews 13 15, through Jesus then. Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, a sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of lips to give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Right. So we, we worship God as a sacrifice today through Christ. As we as we serve others, it's a sacrifice and God is pleased that those are modern day sacrifices. And those are the righteous sacrifices that we offer today. Uh, offer sacrifice means worship God rightly. You know, there are many people in the land of Israel who, who worshipped, bringing their lamb, doing everything externally, but did so with a bad heart. Or they brought their lame and crippled lambs to be sacrificed. But Psalm 24 says we must worship the Lord with clean hands and pure hearts, and we can do that sanctified through the blood of Christ. That's the conduct of the godly, is to, is to walk in a righteous way. And you walk in a righteous way, God will hear your prayer. We see a contrast then coming here in, in verse 6. We see many are saying, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. You see, there are many doubters in God's in David's day. Many who weren't trusting in the Lord. Many who are saying, who will show us any good? These are like the mockers of Psalm 3, verse 2. Many are saying of my soul, there's no deliverance for him in God. Now, it's difficult to know exactly who these people are. Maybe these are people who are out with David losing faith. Maybe these are the ones who are kind of with God, but then <laughs> I'm living in a, a cave running from Saul. Who's going to show us any good? Lacking God's goodness, maybe. <clears throat> we see this often with people who maybe profess a faith in Christ as long as things go well. But when things go bad, their true colors shine and they say, I didn't sign up for this. But Jesus signs us up. We sign up for Jesus to die and to give our whole self to him, regardless of what it means. This may have been people, David, may have been the rulers. Could have been them as well, causing David's trouble in the first place. These are those who have no patience when the kindness of God, they wait and there's no answer to prayer. Maybe it's them. We don't know. And then there's two views of the second half of verse six. Uh, it may be a continuation of the quote like the ESV takes it. So these people are saying, 
Who will show us any good? And then mockingly say, we'll lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. Yeah, but that's not going to work, is it? That might be one view. That's what the ESV says. Or it might be David's genuine prayer. Many are saying, who will show us any good? And then David then turns to God. Listen, there's trouble around. These people are mocking us. So, Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. Either way, it's a prayer that the godly pray. We pray for God's countenance to be upon us. We pray for God's favor to be upon us. We we pray that God would bless us like the priests of old who would stand at the end of the, the service and announce the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. Lord Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. That's the heart of the godly. You desire blessing, desire peace, desire grace, desire comfort. It's got to be God shining upon us, having his favor. His, not the frowning providence, but the light of his smiling face upon us. Well, that then takes us to our third and final point this morning. We find the, the comfort of the Lord. This psalm goes from the cry of the anguish to the, the conduct of the godly, finally to the comfort of the Lord. This is verses 7 and 8. This is the, the whole place where it's going. Psalm is about being in trouble. Psalm is about walking right and finding peace in trouble. In fact, that's why the title of my message this morning is just finding peace in times of trouble. And it can be somewhat elusive, but it's really simple. It just says, seek the Lord. And it might, it's my call to all of you. In your trouble, just seek the Lord. Pastorally, I just know over the years, coming to people and their situations in life, sometimes things are just so difficult. I don't have an answer for them. I can't fix their problems. I wish I could. There are many times. People have come to me before and I've said, you know, I wish I could fix your problems. I wish I could make things better. I wish I could just like pull out this magic pill and say, well, take two of these and I'll see you in the morning. You'll probably be better or give you some shot. I can't do that. Life is is so complex. But the one thing I can do is the one thing that really will work. Says, look to the Lord, trust in him. David here gives a testimony of the comfort he has found in the Lord. He says this, you, O Lord, have put gladness in my heart. More than when their grain and new wine abound, in peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you, O Lord, you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safely, in safety. Well, let's just begin with verse seven. This is such a rich verse. I remember discovering this verse a few years ago and just meditating on it, really thinking on it, and delighting in it. it it's a comparison, really. It's comparing David who's found his peace with God, with his enemies who have not found peace with God. And, and David pictures this, this days of harvest when the grain comes in and everyone's enjoying the fruit of their labor. And the new wine is freely flowing. Everyone's enjoying it. And his testimony is this, that God has given me more joy than what they have when they're enjoying their, their wine and their grain. Okay, so let's think now about harvest in the time of David. For us... We can have fresh fruit any day of the year. Because of the global economy, because of transportation, we can have strawberries, oranges, bananas, nectarines, peaches, apples, watermelon, pineapple. Any time of the year, any time we want. You just need to go to the local grocery store, pick it up there. Sometimes it might be more expensive, okay? But we can have it any time we want. Fresh. Now, there are some limitations to that, surely, but almost any time throughout the year, we can have any kind of fruit we want. Not so for David in his day. For them, they could eat fresh fruit only when it was fresh, only when it was harvested. 
So you take different fruits, come different parts of the season, right? The strawberries come at a different time. The, the cantaloupe comes, different time the watermelon comes. But most often it, it crescendos there in the fall in the harvest time. And that's the only time they can enjoy it. You know, to me, the best meal we could ever have at our house, I tell Savon all the time, is just chicken on the grill with, Yvonne, help me here, with corn and fruit. <laughs> if we would have if we'd have chicken on the grill and corn and fruit, that's like that's like the best meal we could ever have. And and you know, we can have that almost every night. But if we had it every night, that wouldn't be so good. But we can almost have it every night we want. Corn on the cob might be a little bit difficult to get. But that favorite meal of mine could only be enjoyed by those in David's day, maybe a month out of the year. At other times they ate preserved food that had been dried or salted. So you think about it, if they wanted to have that meal, they would maybe have like beef jerky and fruit roll-ups. It doesn't, it doesn't quite, it, it, no, that doesn't quite, quite make it. It's the best they could do. But so, so think about it in contrast to that, what a wonderful time harvest is. When they can gorge themselves on all the fresh fruit and all the fresh grain that they could eat. All the new wine just totally abounding. And in fact, I think they would gorge themselves Right, you eat too much pineapple, and you know that flavor that you get in your mouth when it just your tongue, whether the acid gets in there, it starts tasting bad. You guys know what I'm talking about? Yes, you hanging out. You know what I mean? I love pineapple. I start eating it, but after you have so much, then it, you know. But when you gorge yourself on pineapple, or when you eat so many apples, you go to the apple orchard, right? You're picking apples, and you're you're eating them kind of while you go away, or you you pick cherries, and you go away like oh. But you're eating it because it's so good. That's what they got to do. And that's what they encouraged them to do. Eat it because it's going rotten. They didn't have the preservation. Just eat it up. Eat it up. Eat it up. And they ate and ate and ate. And they were so happy. And David says, you take their happiness. And God, the happiness you've given me is more than the joy that they have. Isn't that what verse 7 says? You've put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. I have more gladness than they have. Think about David, though. David's in distress. People are slandering him. People are mocking him. He says, I have more joy. He says, it matters not what circumstances of life are, because I have found the fountain of joy. It's not dependent on circumstances, but upon God who gives me joy. He gives me joy even in the bad times. It doesn't take the pleasure of the harvest to give me joy. I don't need to go to parties to have joy. Everything doesn't have to go well with me in order to have joy. I just need God who gives me joy and pleasures in my heart. And for those of you who know Jesus, such ought to be your experience as well. When Peter wrote his epistle, first epistle, that's the argument. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. He says, God has shown up, has changed and transformed your heart, given you a promise of this eternal inheritance you're going to have in heaven, which is imperishable, undefiled and unfading. And that's reserved for you. God's protected it and you're going to get there. And then he says this in verse 6 of 1 Peter 1. In this, in that salvation, in the glories of Christ, you greatly rejoice. And we can think about everything that Christ has given. We greatly rejoice. But then he says, but I know the circumstance of your life. 
Verse, 1 Peter 1, 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. You've been distressed by various trials. It's necessary so you see the glories of heaven. But in that you greatly rejoice. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, these trials have come to, genu- to, to show whether your faith is genuine or not. And as you go through these trials, your, your faith and trust is in heaven. It says your faith is real. You can really trust this. And though you have not seen him, right? We don't see Jesus now. You love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. There's something better there than what's happened in our life. And that ought to give Christians abounding joys more than when their grain and new wine abound. You take the happiness of people who don't believe in Christ and a Christian believer who believes in Christ ought to be happier than they are because they have a better hope. I say this, church family, a grumpy Christian is an oxymoron. It doesn't fit because of the hope we have. Now, certainly there's times for sorrow, there's times of grief, there's times... But but even in our sorrows, we ought to find joy. And joy ought to be so overwhelming that we have the hope we have in Christ, that we find gladness in all circumstances of our life, no matter how bad life gets. As Job said, right, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. But there was this joy. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I will bless you, God, even when you give, even when you take away. Now, we're not talking stoicism here. We're not talking about Pollyanna playing the glad game. We're, we're talking about genuine, heartfelt, deep down joy given to us by the Lord of the universe that would defy all logical explanation. See, the world understands when the fortunes of life turn good for you, when you get the new job, when you get the race, right? when, when you get this or when you get that or when you get that or things are going well and you're living well and, and you're happy. The world gets that. Anyone in the world is like that. But it's, it's when you're going through trials and difficulty and sorrow and hardship that you're still like that. That's when the world takes notice and says, well, there's something different about those folks. Life is terrible for them. They, got, they have difficulties, but there still is a joy that they have. It's because our joy ought to transcend this life. But notice that this joy, it's not self-manufactured. It, it's not some mental technique of thought I'm trying to teach you this morning. I'm just saying trust in the Lord and trust that God will give it to you. God, you, verse 7, have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. Do you have it? Do you have that joy? Do you want it? Pray for it. God, give me joy in the circumstance. Trust the Lord. In the middle of trusting Him in difficult times, I believe joy will be yours. In verse 8, we see another God-given blessing. And I'll finish quickly here. Sleep. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. This is the punchline of the psalm. This is the final point. Finding peace in times of trouble. And you find that peace in trusting in the Lord. Despite all of his trouble, David finds his rest, his security in God. In fact, I hope you notice that this, the gladness comes, verse 7, from God. I hope you notice also that the peace also comes from God. These verses hint at the danger of David. He's talking about lying down in a dangerous situation. 
like a, a soldier in Iraq or Afghanistan lying down. There's danger. We wake up the next day. Now, we don't know the circumstances, but there's some kind of danger that could come at night when he sleeps. Maybe some enemies come up. Maybe, you know, there's some kind of guard. Maybe some guard. Maybe it's a revolt. Who knows? And yet, when he trusts in God, he finds his security is done there. John Calvin says this, David enjoys as much security and quiet as if he had been defended by all the garrisons on earth. You pick the safest place you can be. Washington, D.C. and the Pentagon, maybe. Oh, but that can be bombed, too, I guess. But some safe place. The strongest army in the world. Right? You're on Air Force One. I don't know. David finds much safety in his sleep. That's all the garrisons of the earth protecting him. And such is the rest you can find in God. In fact, I would say this trust and this peace, this security is better than the armies of the earth. Because they can bomb the Pentagon. They get at you. But when you're safe in God, you know that you've got his protection all over you. You can fall asleep like a baby. You know, there's a, there's a child's prayer that goes like this. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I shall die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. That's security and peace and trust and rest in God. And I think some adults can learn from children and just trust their souls to God in that little prayer. So the message of Psalm 4 is to trust ourselves in God. You know, life, life is difficult. Life is hard. But I'm going to find my peace and rest and safety and security in the Lord. So let's pray. Father, we do... We do come to you realizing that you, O oh Lord, hold the key to our safety and our security and our peace in times of difficulty. Well, I pray that you would give us people a passionate praying to you. We might be those who continue to knock, continue to seek, continue to find. Lord, that we would walk in a, in a godly way that pleases you. God, that you delight to hear our prayers. Lord, that we would find as a church body comfort in the Lord. It has been a delight, O Lord, to see many here in this congregation go through particular trials in recent days, trusting in you, trying hard. And Father, in that we do rejoice. We pray that you might strengthen us for that today. Teach us for the trials tomorrow. Help us in all things to exalt Christ. Father, I also pray for this picnic. Thank you for the food that you have given. We, we do eat of it thankfully. And I pray we might reflect upon the joy we have of eating charcoal, grilled burgers and hot dogs, God, and fruit, and chips and good things and playing and having good times. We realize that our joy in you is deeper than that, though. But we do thank you for the good times that you've given to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.